to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. Today's conversation is with the author, speaker and photographer, Penny Winsor, who was born in Melbourne and now lives in London. Her book, Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring, love the title, is a powerful, important and beautifully written book that's partly a social commentary on caring, what it is, why it's so essential for the survival of humanity, yet so undervalued, and is woven through with her own experiences of being a carer, firstly to her mum, who suffered with depression throughout Penny's teen years, and now to her son, Arthur, who's 12, and has a learning disability and is autistic. In this episode, we talk about the problems with comparison and perfectionism in society, why we judge others as well as ourselves, self-compassion as the most important thing we can all learn, and where we can find purpose in our lives. So please do take a look at Penny's book. She is a talented author with a couple of more books on the horizon. She also runs wonderful workshops and coaches aspiring authors, has a newsletter and her own podcast and takes beautiful interiors photos. So do look her up. If you enjoy this conversation, I'd really appreciate you leaving a little review or getting in touch. I think Penny is an incredibly inspiring woman. And I'm sure you will too. Hi, Penny. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to finally have you on the podcast today. And I have to say, I have really, really enjoyed reading your book. Oh, my goodness. It really, really resonated with me. So um, I'm really excited about our conversation today. But before um, we chat, I just want to start off by asking you if you can share your moment of tenderness with with us because the idea behind the tenderness revolution podcast is that essentially our lives are made up of all these little stories stitched together and when we shine a light on scenes where we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves moments where we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us It's as though we're awakened to a greater sense of meaning and purpose. So please do share your moment with us. Oh, this is a tricky one. Um, I was thinking about it and I was thinking about um, really when I've learned to have tenderness towards myself, um, which I think has been one of the trickiest things in life to learn <laughs> and I'm sure lots of people will feel quite similar um I I remember um really when when I started realizing that I 
didn't have to when I when things went wrong um, and particularly in the case of um, you know I'm a carer to my son who is autistic and has a learning disability and I think um, when I really really when it really finally clicked that um, that I was going to do things wrong and things were going to go wrong and that I didn't then need to beat myself up on top of it and I remember it really really clearly um, I remember um, just, I guess, a sense of release, like, oh, actually, um, I guess treating myself with tenderness and treating myself with kindness when I do something wrong is actually um, the way the way forward. <laughs> I know that sounds, it might sound really strange, but um, I realized that, that, when I when I made a mistake with him and when I make a mistake with my son it does it can feel quite catastrophic and when I say mistake I mean accidentally doing something in the wrong order which leads to a meltdown something that I could have easily um, avoided they're the things I used to beat myself up the most about something really small that I could have avoided that then meant the day just kind of went kind of way out of control. And when I really learned that I didn't have to do that, that I could let those moments happen and offer both my son and me con compassion in those moments, I just, it just suddenly realized that I could let them go. Um, and as soon as I'm able to let them go, we can get on with our day and it doesn't have to ruin our whole day. Um, and, and part of that came from looking at how my son was able to let things go. He's when he loses it, he can really lose it and get, and um, you can really see him physically going to fight or flight. And um, when he gets into that position, like when we all do in a way, you almost need to just let it pass through. You can't stop it at some points, you know, it just has to happen. Um, and and then I would notice that actually he recovered really well from these moments. Like, you know, half an hour later, he could be really happy playing in the garden. You know, he might have used up a lot of emotional capacity that day. So he might be prone to it happening again later because he's maybe quite depleted from it. But at the same time, he was really quite well recovered. And I remember looking at him going, how does he do that? Mm. And in a way, I think it's similar to how he's able to, he's able to let go of a lot of things rather than always hold on to them. And so partly I was able to learn that from watching him and partly just from understanding mm. more about compassion and how it's not finite and how if I use it on myself, I don't run out of it. Because I think that's um, what I used to worry about in those moments when my son was having a really hard time, if I, I thought at first, if I offered myself compassion in those moments, that I was using up the compassion for me instead of him, which mm -hmm. felt really selfish because of course, you know, it's so difficult for him to be having a meltdown. It's awful. It's much worse for him to be experiencing it than it is for me. Mm -hmm. And so I used to think that I would be somehow taking it away from him, but actually through the research I did in the reading there really is a lot of evidence to show that the more compassion you have for yourself, the more you have for other people as well. And so you're almost like growing it by giving yourself compassion. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. And I love self-compassion. It's a big, big interest of mine. And I loved your chapter on it in the book. And I'm really familiar with Kristen Neff's work as well. Mm. And I did that course, the, the mindful self-compassion course, and it really changed so much for me. Mm. I know exactly 
what you're talking about. And I think it's it's one of the most tender things that we can mm. do in life to have that compassion for ourselves. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you talked about this story in your book, but it really um, it really hit me the first time I heard Kristen Neff describe how she was with her autistic son on an aeroplane and he was having a meltdown. Mm. And, and she tried to put, uh, you know, she thought she'd experiment and try put this um, self-compassion into practice. And, and what it looked like was, like you're saying, is that sense of this is really, really hard for him. Mm. And it's really hard for me too. And yeah, and it's okay. Cause I'm doing my best and he he's struggling. And mm. it, it was so powerful to me, like hearing yeah. that it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, you and and there's that thing isn't there in buddhism the second arrowing it's like where you you they have this difficult thing and then the second arrow is feeling bad about that difficult thing you know it is hard actually this thing that i've experienced is hard and Mm. it's okay you know it's okay you know and it's massive i believe that it could change the world if we could afford to talk to ourselves like that yeah it's really interesting because it's also and it is also a practice and I'm not always very good at it so it's funny because I've written about it and I feel really strongly about it but it's still difficult to do and I don't I don't think it's difficult to talk kindly to myself anymore um it's not that I never have a harsh inner word for myself but it's very easy to turn away from that now Mm. I find it really easy to find my compassionate voice Mm. but what I still struggle with is in those very difficult moments when my son is completely flipped out Mm. um remaining that remaining very calm can still be difficult um and but what I'm but I have got very good at the afterwards the um the kind of not spending the rest of the day beating myself up because I put a water glass in the way which meant he kicked it over and then then he had a meltdown because his feet were wet or something you know you know those kinds of things I can really I'm I'm much better at letting letting go and focusing on just reconnecting with him Mm. um but yeah I mean we had an incident yesterday and it was the first incident we've had in a little while about about um, about going to school just because we're coming up to the Easter holidays here and he's really tired and he's ready for Easter break. Um, And, and it's funny, like I, I really didn't react very well to it. Like I was quite, I found myself being really impatient and really like, like really, really wound up about it. And then I realized afterwards um, often that can happen when I've got too much going on and my capacity is really low, but that isn't the case at the moment. I'm very busy, but I'm not like emotionally stressed at the moment, particularly Mm. just very busy. Mm. So, I was trying to figure out what it was that really triggered me in that moment, like why I struggled to find calm. And I realized it was because sometimes when he has a big melt like I'm down like that and we haven't had one for a while, I get really, really scared because yeah. I'm like, oh, we're going down this road again. Oh, yeah. And it's and and in a way, that's the thing about the mindful self-compassion that's so useful is mm-hmm. that because it's really trying to get you to be just now. Yeah. Like, I don't, like, I wasn't even conscious that that was why I was, I was not coping very well, but I realized maybe an hour later that that's what it was. Um, Because it is scary because my son is now 12 and he's, he's going to be bigger than me soon. And so a a violent meltdown is, 
is starting, you know, I can see that it's going to start being physically quite scary for both of us. Um, because of course it's terrible for my son because he literally can't control himself in those moments. So, um, and he feels awful about them afterwards, but, um, so it's, you know, you know, it is, it is scary. It's scary that those Mm -hmm. things still happen. Mm Um, and I had, once I'd sort of that had clicked into place, you know, an hour or so later, I was able to just be like, you know what, like it is scary and it's okay to be scared about that. But also I have to work on reminding myself not to bring those fears into the moment because I don't have to deal with the future in that moment. I only have to deal with that moment. Mm. And so I do need to, it's still hard. Like it's still a big practice to kind of remind yourself only to deal with the moment in front of you and not all of the potential future moments as well. It's a really tricky, really tricky practice. It's really tricky, but you articulate it so beautifully. You know, it's all of those things. It's that, I mean, I suppose I remember the moment when I realized it's about partly realizing what is it that's driving this reaction? Mm -hmm. Like, so you said, you know, it's this fear of the future, so you get better at noticing those mm, things. You do, yeah. And then, and then when you work it out, like as you did, you're like, it's okay to feel scared about the future because it is hard. So I, you know, I I feel for that. Like I give myself compassion mm. for for finding it hard. And 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 you just have this, oh, you know, this internal like, mm. oh, thank you, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, like a letting go. You can you can go. just start to unwind a bit about it. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it just feels so nice to have that, you know, that, that kindness, show that kindness to those mm. difficult things, acknowledge the difficult thing and then, you know, show yourself kindness for it, you know, like the way you would with a friend. Um, mm. I, I remember you describing that in your book, you know, realizing that, well, this is how I would talk to a friend that was finding something hard. I can talk to myself like that too, you know. But there is a resistance to it. I've spoken to people about it before and, um, you know, I've had reactions like, well, yeah, but then how would I ever do anything? I mean, I wouldn't do anything if I was to always be kind to myself. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and I think that's a misunderstanding about what motivates us as humans. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've often been brought up in very kind of uh, in cultures where it's expected in classrooms, for instance, where it's expected that you need a punishment in order to not do something wrong. Um, you need to have, you know, that you somehow always have to have a deadline. You always have to have a punishment just in case you decide to suddenly be a terrible person, uh, whatever it is. And obviously that's just one way of looking at humans and it's actually um, not necessarily the case. I mean, I, actually as a parent I have never used punishment um not that my children get to do whatever they want but people often think that's what it means Mm -hmm. but it just means that um we have boundaries instead of arbitrary punishments Mm -hmm. um so because I I truly don't think people are their best in um when they're treating themselves or treating others um really badly I just don't, I just don't think we're at our best. I think we're at our best when we feel supported um, but also, and are shown kindness, but also are given boundaries and conditions to work within and everything. But, um, but yeah, I just, I just don't think we're at our best no. when we speak harshly to anyone and no. especially ourselves. 
Yeah, and actually it connects to, you know, this like concept of basic goodness. I think it connects to that, you know, for me and also this thing about not punishing, which is, well, ultimately we're all just good underneath. Like that's our true nature. Mm. So if you kind of recognize that and 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 come from that place, yeah, rather than a place of, well, really you're like bad underneath and you're going to revert yeah. to that badness. Yeah. If Definitely. I don't keep you in this if I don't make you know contain you yeah you're just going to be bad yeah yeah it's this idea of um um which I think I I think Brene Brown has talked about in some of her earlier books this idea that um you know whether or not you believe that people are genuinely doing the best they can in any moment which I do genuinely believe yeah and that doesn't mean that people aren't doing things wrong or doing things they shouldn't Mm. um but they're they're coping and doing what they can in that moment Mm. um and I genuinely believe that and so I think if we can give people the opportunity to thrive (laughs) if we can then that's what they will do um yeah and also still make mistakes along the way yeah absolutely (laughs) but I think that like you said that belief if if you hold that as your value I do think that shapes the way you approach the world and I think you know historically there has been another approach which is more of a fear-based one and I think that you know that along with the sense that you know, as you, as you just really beautifully explained, you know, people have stuff like they're carrying all kinds of crap, you know, they're carrying, you know, all these difficult experiences they've had and stuff that they're, you know, they've been subjected to or belief systems that they've been handed. That's what stops people from behaving in the best possible way, not who they ultimately are, but it's, it's you know, that people carry around. But I, I don't think, I don't think that many people really think about the world in that way, but you know, we, I mean, I think we, we find our ways of coping with the hand we've been dealt in life, don't we? And um, they can be, those coping mechanisms can be really positive and or really negative or probably mostly a mixture of both, depending on whether or not we still need those coping mechanisms anymore. Yeah. Um, But to kind of, in a way blame ourselves for developing these coping systems in the first place I think is sort of like there's no point in doing that we've done what we've done to survive in whatever imperfect situations we've been in um and I think you know um I've really noticed that about myself you know the I think how I reacted to the lockdowns for instance um was really interesting um because and I spoke to quite a few other parents of disabled children about how they reacted to it as well. Um, a lot of us did react quite like very fearfully mm. because there's so much that we had to lose in a way. Understand. Um, and I remember thinking um, like, God, why can't I just like, chill out and accept that this is happening and and I was like sort of went into overdrive doing and making sure that I did as much as I could to protect myself during that time Um, and then I've just realized well I mean actually there's a really good reason there's a really good reason that I kind of go into overdrive when things go wrong Um, because 
yeah, I've, I've, you know, things have happened in my life that have gone wrong and I've coped with them by over-functioning. And it's sort of, I can, again, try and be compassionate that that's Mm. sometimes how I react because, you know, the pandemic was not my first rodeo. (laughs) It was the first of that kind, but um, it's certainly not the, the, the most difficult thing that's happened in my life. It's just, it certainly compounded a lot of tricky things. Mm. Um, But yeah, you almost have to kind of be a bit more compassionate about your coping mechanisms as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's that thing of awareness, isn't it? And you're, you know, one of the things that comes across in your book is you're so self-aware, you know, and you are aware of when you know you're so honest as well you're honest and then you have this awareness of this difficult thing ah that's what it was and then the compassion which is which is always what's needed I think Mm -hmm. always always um but I wanted to talk a bit to start with about just so you know the subject of caring I mean your book really stood out to me as the social commentary that we all desperately need to read. I mean, there are just so many powerful statistics in there. Just how undervalued, but utterly, utterly essential, you know, caring is to the survival of humanity Mm. and the economy. Uh, You know, you said, I think between birth and death, the one thing we all know is that life will feature care, you know? Mm. So Obviously, women come out really badly in all of this. Women do 75% of all unpaid work um, in the US alone. That really interesting statistic about the um, cost of unpaid care being provided was $450 billion, the same yeah. as Walmart's annual sales figures. So it's sort of like the taboo, the thing that people don't really want to admit or talk about. And one of the things I love is that I think I feel like your book it provides a, a sort of a map for both the internal and external work that needs to be done to sort of fully understand and appreciate what caring is and how we can help each other to do it <clears throat> so I mean I, I really love I love talking about all the internal stuff but in terms of the external world um just to start off you know what would you like to sort of articulate is the first thing do you think that needs to change in the external world um I think well I think it's quite complex but I think essentially some really concrete things that could change uh quite easily if there was um you know impetus and willing to do so is I mean the that in the UK there is an absolute crisis in the care industry. I mean, it's it was on it was a crisis before the pandemic, and there's been such a a huge surge of need for care during the pandemic. Um, but you know there needs to be proper funding of care. I think a lot of people, in some ways, I don't know either, don't understand or perhaps partially have their head in the sand about the NHS does not provide care. It doesn't. It 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 helps people when they're sick and dying um <laughs> it does not provide care um the the need for proper funded care um a care proper properly funded care system is is, is just i mean it's just absolutely crucial um 
because at the moment and still to this day, gosh, I mean, I think it was like Rishi Sunak, you know, just this past year was sort of saying, yes, well, the first port of call for anyone who needs care should be their immediate family. Um, and, you know, this is still being perpetuated. And of course, people want to provide care for their loved ones. They absolutely do. And in fact, every single person I interviewed for the book, they didn't want to not to be doing it. No. But they had too much put upon them and it wasn't possible to Not do what really. they were doing without huge huge sacrifice um life changing sacrifices um you know women are the the one of the poorest groups of people in um society are older women because they haven't been able to pay into pensions and that's because they've been caring for children and then caring for all the other family members because once you're already have spent time out of the workforce caring for children, you are the go-to person then to care for all the other family members who become unwell as they get older. Um, so, um, you know, it leaves women in poverty. Um, and although men are doing more and more caring now, they really are. Um, women live a long time as well. Um, they provide care, but they also receive care. Um, a, a lot of the care done by men is, um, is after they finish working so after retirement yeah. age that's when a lot of them are stepping up and so yeah. although they're making a massive contribution um they often have not made the same sacrifices throughout their working lives that women have made and so that's where it's still a very gendered issue even though if you look statistically i think it's something like 58 or 59 percent of carers are women um and you know 40 something percent are men so you think oh that's not bad but when you look at the numbers actually you know anyone providing care of more than 35 hours a week it's 70 percent or 75 percent women who are doing that yeah so when you're talking about the the big hours the amount the amounts of hours and also for the number of years it's usually women doing those longer ones so i think immediately having a proper funded care system is the most immediate and totally possible fixable kind of thing mm. um and so that uh so that so anyone who wants to do it has the support in place to keep doing it as long as possible because that's the other thing as well is that um you know it's it's not necessarily for short periods of time. Often it's for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And so, um, so it's making it as, um, as I guess, like providing the support for both the person who needs care and for the person, the other people in their lives providing that care so that it can go on as long as so they can sustain it. Yeah. So they can yeah. sustain it. Yeah. 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 And that just makes so much sense. And, and young carers, that's another really, really interesting subject that you touch on a lot and I mean you obviously have personal experience of that so were you about 13 when you started sort of caring for your mum in that way or when she um well it sort of happened a bit over time um she first started becoming unwell when I was 11 um but I would say by the time I was about 13 I had a lot of caring responsibilities although I didn't know that's what it was at the yeah. time yeah um and I didn't know until many years after she died that that's what I was that I was a young carer um it's something I think is so important to talk about because even carers of any age really struggle to identify themselves as carers and it's really really important because it's the first stage of um you know accepting that that's what you're doing is the first step towards being able to reach out and get 
more support that you might need in order to continue doing it. Yeah. Um, but young carers, particularly, it's really hard to identify them. Um, often um, families are not um, necessarily open and honest about, about how much care a child is mm. providing because perhaps of some feelings of shame around it that it shouldn't yeah. be happening. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily always easy to spot. Um, and yeah, I certainly didn't think that's what I was doing. I just thought, well, I'm just being a daughter. Um, but I think the thing that's interesting about young carers particularly is there's two sort of sides to it. One is that they are providing care for somebody else in the family. And the other is that they're possibly missing out on care for themselves because they're the ones who are taking the more kind of parental role in the family. Mm. And so there's sort of two sides to that. Um, it is identifying as a carer is really, is really, really important. And part of the reason why I talk about my experiences caring for my mum and now for my son, because um, although of course I'm first and foremost a mother, I am also an unpaid carer. And the reason it's important to articulate that difference, um, because I know I often get asked this because a lot of, a lot of parents feel really um, complicated feelings about using the word carer. The reason I think it's really important, the reason I um, I suggest people use that term um, and get comfortable with the term is partly because um, when we accept that what we're doing is above and beyond regular parenting, we can also accept that we might need support mm. beyond what a typical parent might receive. Mm. And I think that's really, really, really crucial. Yeah. Um, the other thing, the other reason why I think it's really important is because I think we're quite we, we have a you know a difficulty with the word carer and partly that's because we have I mean there's a few reasons but I think um I think partly that's because we have a have difficulty with the word disabled um oh. and and accepting you're a carer is accepting that the person that you love is disabled and that can be really difficult for people and I get that and it can take quite a long time to get your head around that but I think it's really important because I think we need to um, not use euphemisms around disability. Um, there's absolutely no shame in being disabled. There's nothing wrong with being disabled. It can be very difficult and very challenging to live with for multiple reasons, um, many of which are societal, but not always. You know, often a disability comes with, you know, chronic pain or something like that, which is incredibly difficult. But there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. It is just it is just what it is. It is yeah. And so in a way, embracing the word carer is also embracing the word disability, which I think is really important, particularly when you're raising a disabled child so that they understand that there is nothing to be ashamed of in being disabled. Mm. That makes me think about your chapter on ableism. And I was fascinated with that whole discussion and the way that you you brought so many different things into it um the way you talked about reference points um that was really really interesting um the way that people who have um babies who are considered disabled at birth the way that they're spoken to um the way that news is presented to them this the way you talked about this thing of of other people's perceptions judgment pity um and and the benchmarks um you know the way that obviously this thing of comparison but 
uh, one thing that really stands out was when you described when Arthur went to a mainstream school for for a while and the, the way that, you know, they kept referring to these benchmarks and the fact that he hadn't, you know, met them. And it it's just this sense of there's a child who is normal and, you know, is the perfect child or the healthy child or whatever. And actually, it's not even true. <laughs> there isn't even any such thing. Some imaginary perfect it, child. It exist. <laughs> like there isn't actually. And, and then there's so much. There's always, you know, even parents of children who don't have a disability always want to know well how does my child compare and where do they fit in and you know are they in the higher end or the lower end or in the middle so it just made me think a lot about difference and disability and how we think about differences and how we think as you were saying about disability um and I I was just wondering if actually it's just a lack of imagination it's just like that's the problem there's a beautiful book that I've been reading by um John Kabat-Zinn who's a, a sort of a meditation teacher um called Falling Awake and there's this part where he talks about um different sensory experiences um in relation to mindfulness and Actually, he's talking about aliveness, like what does it really mean to be alive? And it made me think about disability and how we're so limited in our understanding of different perceptual experiences. And I think that's part of the problem. That's partly why there's so much fear around disability or there's so much lack of understanding. Talked about Helen Keller, the, the famous American disability rights activist who lost her hearing and sight when she was almost two. She recognised people by scent. She had this amazing mm. um, ability to to kind of to be able to smell and and actually learn and understand so much about a person by other means, you know, other than the senses that we sort of rely on. And there's a theologian, John Hull, who lost his sight in his late forties, and he described how he became a whole body seer. So he shifted his attention of gravity to other senses. So he experienced, he described this experience of rain and the way that it delineated a whole landscape for him. Mm. Just the way that the, the sound of rain falling on different surfaces made him feel, you know, as though he was there. And it, it brought him a sense of perception that he didn't have before he lost his sight. And you know, these kind of experiences, I don't think we consider them uh, I don't think that we use our imaginations enough in in relation to experiences of aliveness yeah I mean I think partly it's a lack of ima imagination I think that's a good way of putting it but I also think it's because traditionally disabled people have not had a voice and have not been able to share these experiences mm. um, and so I think really what we can all do um, to help change these perceptions is to read the work of disabled writers, you know, yes. watch their films. I mean, Coda was just incredible and it's just won an Academy Award and it is just such a celebration of deaf culture mm. um, in a way that, you know, unless you're lucky enough to have deaf people in your life, you might not ever experience necessarily. Um, and so I think, you know, through art and through literature and all these different things, 
um, if we can turn to people with different experiences, then we can understand it. So yeah, partly it's a lack of imagination, but partly it's also that we haven't been, you know, as, um, as a society, haven't really um, given disabled people the opportunity to kind of create art and to mm. share their experiences. Um, I think it's the kind of, you know, for anyone listening that has a disabled child or has a disabled child in their life, perhaps they're a teacher or, you know, have nieces and nephews or something. Um, I think the best thing that you can do is to turn to disabled people and to understand what the experience is mm. as it's lived rather than projecting what you think it's going to be like. Because I think I've heard lots of disabled writers write about this and talk about this disabled actors talk about this this idea that um uh when stories are told from the perspective and the point of view of a non-disabled person um there is always going to be this sense of like that it's that oh the disability is the problem that it's a shame it's a thing that's it's a deficit it's a you know but when when it's from the perspective of somebody with that lived experience, you know, for some, you know, for many disabled people, it's th their only experience, you know, they might've had a disability for, the, for their entire lives. And so um, as far as they're concerned, they're like, it's just something that they live with in the same way that I live with being a woman. It's my experience of being in the world and I can't separate myself from that experience. That's how I've always experienced it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's where, you know, we all have a role to play by, um looking looking for those stories and seeing them and for that art definitely those stories and what you were saying there is what makes me think though about judgment that was um something else that I thought was brilliant in your book the way you articulated it and the fact that you know generally the society we live in does have a, a you know this sense of scarcity um mm -hmm. this never enough this lack and and comparing is a big part of it and I love the way you even admitted that you would often question others even yourself especially before you know you had Arthur and it's just it's a human tendency um this thing of blame I think it really connects to control and mm -hmm. the fact that it's it's very very scary to let go and then there's this black and white thinking you know um this sense that you know, everything is either, you know, either or good or bad. And mm. I love the way that the way you described parenting. And I just think all experiences of parenting, all experiences of life really is all of it. Like it's everything. It's, it's, it's unbelievably hard and amazing. Mm, yeah. And I don't know what I just, why do you think it's so hard for us to accept all the difficult bits are what make the good bits amazing because that that's something yeah. that you talk about it, it is and you know what was interesting when I started doing reading around this because that fascinates me as well why do we struggle to accept that there are some really difficult things that happen when you're a parent and well when you love anyone right yeah. you know yeah. with your partner or your parents or your siblings and your children or whoever right Absolutely. like I think it was so interesting to me when I found this this um, work and I can't remember who it's gosh sorry I can't remember who who did the the which psychologist did the work um but there's a lot of really interesting research about how humans are really really underestimate their capacity for what they can deal with mm. I mean we're terrible at it we're terrible about um, um underestimating ourselves we don't think we can cope with anything mm. and we can cope with an awful lot Mm. we really can but we um but we really don't believe that we're going to be able to you know so I mean 
I was even just thinking, I think about this regularly. Thank God I don't know what's coming for me. I don't want to know because I know that when the time comes and things happen and they go wrong and they will because we're human and they will, there's some, you know, I love a lot of people. Things are going to happen to them or to me. Um, (laughs) It's inevitable. Um, I don't want to know because I know that I'll just deal with it as it comes. I just have to deal with it as it comes. Um, And I, I look back and I think about all the things that I've coped with over the years with you know my mum dying and well first caring for her and then her dying then um you know even just things like you know the kind of terrorism that I've witnessed and um you know getting divorced and childbirth and you know child diagnosis and the pandemic and all the things but of course I coped with all those things over a period of time, one day yeah. at a time. Yes. I didn't, like, if you think about it all in one go, it's like, oh no, that's just too overwhelming. Yeah. But actually, you know, you just cope with one thing at a time, one day at a time, one hour at a time if necessary. And we actually have amazing capacity to, to cope with things as humans, even though it doesn't always feel like it, but we do. And you, I think out of anyone can really say that with some authenticity. <laughs> you know? I mean, just you know, just that list that you reeled off. But I think, um, you know, that's like a tendency to catastrophize and to sort of think, you know, to head or this might happen and that might happen and this might happen and and how will I cope? But actually, it's almost like you're talking about presence. You're saying, well, if I just come back to presence and I'm like, well, if I just be here and I live this experience I'm having now, you know, then everything will be okay if we keep coming back to presence yeah and I think as well we where we get a bit caught up in how things should look and feel um and it causes us a lot of suffering Mm. and you know if we can get better at letting those go we can really live a lot more happily I mean I still my son is 12 I still uh, lie with him as he's falling asleep and I you know if I say that to a parent of typical children they'd just be like what at 12 and also you know for a good hour hour and a half and actually I just accepted it quite a long time ago I mean it would be nice if I wasn't doing it in the future if he gets to the point when he's you know maybe when he's 14 or 15 he won't need me to do that anymore um that would be amazing And I look forward to that if it happens. But at the same time, I have accepted that this is how we do things in our house. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's different to how other people do things. But um, if I get caught up in the idea that no one else has to do this, which is Mm -hmm. not true there, I know there are families out there doing the same thing I'm doing, um, then, you know, you cause yourself more suffering. Um, With that particular situation, how I cope with it is that I really love audiobooks. So I just listen to an audiobook when I'm lying with him and it's, and I just get ready for bed at the same time as him. And so as soon as he's asleep, then I get up and I go to my own bed and I just go straight to bed. But it's it means that I have no time for myself in the evenings because it's all obviously he's he's 12. And so he goes to bed a lot later now and things. Um, it's fine. I have to just put other things in place instead to make sure mm. that I get time I need. Um, doesn't mean I always love it, but I have accepted that that's just how things are. Yeah. I know. I think um, the concept of, I think, surrendering to, you know, the moment or the as is, as opposed to controlling is, it's something that I think, you know, you've, you've had to become good at as, you know, a carer. Mm. I don't think it's something that 
comes easily I think the thing of control is it's very difficult for people to relinquish that and I see it in in other parts of my life I really try and get a lot of control so like I was saying earlier you know like I have a tendency to overfunction when things go wrong (laughs) um so just to give an example in the pandemic because I I spent you know the 15 I spent 15 years as a photographer and I lost all my work in the pandemic and it became clear as the pandemic went on after that first initial four months that we had in lockdown in London um, where I couldn't shoot at all it was against the law um I was actually it was when I was bringing tender out so I had a huge amount of work to do around the book so I was doing a bit of you know, I was writing articles and I was doing a few bits of pieces, but um, I really realized that it was potentially going to be a big problem going back again. And it was actually, my son lost his regular transport to school. We had to be put onto a different system. His, so actually I lost an hour a day and it just mm. basically means I can't be on set when I need to be on set. And, you know, photography is not flexible in lots of ways, even though I'm freelance. And so actually over that, those first six months of the pandemic, I realized that, um, you know, I wasn't going back to that kind of work. It wasn't tenable anymore. The systems I spent years putting in place as a single parent mm. with two kids, in two different schools and my son's special schools quite far away and everything you know it just asked my system all fell apart and it wasn't going to go back um and you know so it has completely changed what I've done for work and so I ended up retraining I've now almost finished the master's <laughs> I'm doing all kinds of other things and people are like but hang on you know you're a single parent and it was a pandemic and you just went and did that and like that's this is me trying to get the tiny bits of control that I know I need, like, I can't control everything. I can't control my son's disability. I can't control the pandemic. I can't necessarily control that the local authority took the transport away that made it function. I can't control that our amazing, amazing nanny who I had, who uh, I was able to get a rebate from because she was osteo-registered. You know, she had to retire because she had got long COVID and I now can't get anyone to replace her under that system. I mean, I can't, those are things I can't control. They're outside of my control. But what I could control was uh, how I could change things to be able to make a living in a different kind of way, in a way that felt good to me, but in a way that could support us and could be done flexibly and all these things. Um, so there, that is where my control comes in. It's like I, I scratch around to find the bits I can control and I really control them. <laughs> so it sounds like I'm very like, oh, everything's fine. I can let go. I can I can let go of the things I know I absolutely have to, which I have zero control over, like my son's bedtime thing. I really don't have control over that. Um, but the things that I do have some control over, boy, do I try and control them. <laughs> but that's like a superpower. Like, really, what? how did you do that? I mean, I'm just absolutely in awe of what you've I, managed to achieve. I think I've... Um, Somebody asked, and another parent carer that I know asked me that, you know, he said to me, he said to me, you could have literally just spent the last two years like watching Netflix. That's how a lot of people have coped with this. And I was like, no, actually I couldn't, I would have been miserable. Mm. Actually, you know, this is work that I really love. I find it incredibly stimulating and life-giving, you know, it gives me energy. It doesn't take away from me. I mean, yes, I've been very stretched thin by my various different responsibilities, but, um, at the same time, I did it because it was, it was, it felt good to do it. It wasn't, you know what I mean? Like I'm 
some people have done other things because it it felt good and right to do those things. But this is something that has, you know, it gives me energy. I realized over that course of the pandemic, you know, work is is so vital to me. Um, not just the work, the actual work that I do, but the ability that to access work is so important to me. I, you know, have been freelance for like 20 years. And um you know, paying into my pension is so important to me. It's mm-hmm. so important. It feels like the biggest act of self-care mm-hmm. I can do for myself yeah. is to pay into my pension. And, uh, you know, the, the thing I need for my emotional and physical well-being um, is to know that I can pay my bills and mm-hmm. look after my children mm-hmm. and also put a little bit away for my future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more important to me than, you know, doing going to yoga and having a bath or whatever else is sort of recommended. <laughs> it's good mm-hmm. for my self-care. You know, mm-hmm. I think something as basic as being able to access work mm-hmm. is um, is often left out of the conversation when it comes to women being able to care for themselves um yeah very interesting I mean I've heard you speak about this really beautifully before and yeah that you know in opposition to that sort of that tendency that anything beyond survival is shameful because obviously there's the surviving part to work for you Mm. but there's also the you know the meaning and the purpose yeah and the self-realization you get through doing work that feels that you feel connected to you know like you're doing this podcast you know you don't have to be doing it you know you're choosing and I'm sure it's a it's a lot of work doing a podcast I know I also have a podcast yes it's a huge (laughs) amount of work but you know it's work that you know is life-giving right you know it gives you something as well as you giving outwards to the world you know it goes both directions it does and it's interesting how that can often be difficult for people to understand because I think work is often reduced to just a way that you pay your bills and I absolutely applaud you know that too I mean you know working to live is is a very you know real aspect of of many many people's lives but they may find purpose elsewhere and I love the way about purpose um so that's another chapter in your book and I think it's actually almost like our life's work is to find what our purpose is it's such an important thing um so I love the way you talk about the difference between purpose and happiness so in relation to there's been so many studies where people who have done some form of care or who've who've helped others have found this sense of purpose from that work even though it might not be something people would imagine would give you Mm. that and there's this difference then between joy and happiness um Mm -hmm. happiness is this sort of ephemeral thing that we're all hoping to find in our lives or cultivate in our lives but actually joy is is like a sort of a deeper version of that and I'm really interested in how you found your purpose because despite everything that you've had to contend with I mean there's been so much from when you were very young and I I know that Elizabeth Gilbert's talked about purpose is very much connected to curiosity so just like Mm. follow 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 your curiosity but I wanted to know from you like how did you find your purpose and you know how can the listeners find purpose through sort of your journey I think first of all when it's said like that 
it almost doesn't feel quite right to me because it almost sounds as if then everybody has a purpose, which I don't think necessarily is true. I think different people will have different bits of purpose at different phases in their lives and they might have also multiple purposes as well. Um, I guess, um, I guess you could look at purpose as like your reason to get up in the morning. Um, And it was, and it's funny, the reason I was thinking about it so much was partly because um, I remember someone sort of saying to me that, oh, I assume, especially when my son moved to a specialist school, which is an incredible school and we were so lucky he could get into someone said something like, oh, you must have something like, oh, almost like, and I didn't, they didn't phrase it like this, but basically I said, oh, you, you must have lower expectations for him, for his life now, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, and I can't remember how they phrased it, but that was basically what they were saying. And, um, and I was, I was like, actually, no, actually I have the same expectations that I've always had, which is that I want him to have a life that his filled with purpose and lots of opportunity for joy and connection with other people. I mean, that's exactly what I want for my daughter and how it manifests in each of them is going to be completely different. Let's be Mm -hmm. honest. It will be really different. That's fine. You know, my daughter's purpose might involve, you know, at the moment she wants to be an animator, (laughs) but you know, my son won't do stuff like that probably. Um, But what I want for him is a sense of purpose, you know, whether that's, you know, he ends up, um, I don't know, singing in a choir or something like that, right? Like it doesn't matter what it is. It could be that you sing in a choir and that is one of the things that drives you, you know, the way that your choir kind of, um, you know, entertains people and, you know, and and helps them feel certain things or whatever it is. Or it might be that, um, in fact, I mean, I have lots of friends who really felt so, so about their careers and they had children and they suddenly felt a much more renewed sense of purpose because they actually had never really found that in their work. Mm. You know, their work was fine and earned them a living and they were quite proud that they could do that maybe, but, um, but didn't feel particularly purposeful. So suddenly becoming a parent felt very purposeful because, you know, the things that you did mattered, you know, the things, the care that you provide another person matters in quite a significant way. So I think we can get purpose in multiple different ways across our life. So I would say that, first of all, I don't think we have one single purpose. (laughs) Um, And, um, and so I guess it's, um, I very much do um believe in a similar way to Elizabeth Gilbert this idea that you that are following your curiosity it's how I've always functioned I don't think I've always had I don't I'm not a five-year plan kind of person I might think about the next year or two I might have a few ideas for what I might want in the future but but no kind of you know 20-step plan to get to xyz goal I have always followed my curiosity and that's taken me in some interesting directions. And now that I'm in my forties and I can look back and see where my curiosity has taken me, I can see the path, but I don't think it's necessarily something you can always see in advance. Mm. Um, But I have learned to trust that when I become deeply interested in something that I can trust that and I can follow and see where it takes me. But it it feels like there's, you're talking about almost like a trust in like a thread that runs through life that you believe that there's this almost like if you if you can kind of connect to that it will take you where you're supposed to go well I think you create that thread yourself and I think if you can trust in your own curiosity it will take you in very interesting places 
I think, you know, sometimes I've, I've spent time with friends who agonize over the next step. Should I apply for that job? You know, you know, and they become almost like paralyzed with not, not being able to know what the next thing is because it has to be the right next step. They're afraid Um, they'll make the wrong choice. Yeah, exactly. And I've always completely dismissed that. Mm. And I have literally just taken the next step that that I was curious, most curious about. Mm. Um, and I, I think it takes a bit of, it does take a, a lot to trust in yourself. I think because I sort of started doing that quite young, I would say in my teenage years, when, I mean, one of the things that happened, I wrote about this in the book, actually, one of the things that happened was that um, when she, when things got really bad, she had really severe depression and alcoholism. And when I was 14, things were really bad. She was in and out of hospital a lot. My dad lived in another country and we were really lucky. My mum was quite well supported in that she could afford, she paid someone to come, like a paid carer to come a couple of afternoons, two or three afternoons a week, check in on us, do a bit of cleaning, you know, put a casserole in the fridge for us, that kind of thing. So we were certainly not alone alone. And we had some extended family checking in, but we were on our own in the house with her. And, you know, I was always making sure she ate and trying to get her out of bed, um, you know, making, you know, doing everything for myself as well um, and that kind of thing. But um, but it was a, that year when I was 14 was bad and she attempted suicide a couple of times and was in and out of hospital a lot. And at the end of that year, um, I decided I, I just couldn't, I, it was going to, it was going, I was felt like I was drowning completely. And so I asked my dad if, if he would support my decision, if I wanted to go away to boarding school and he was very supportive and it was really difficult because my mom really didn't want me to go. Mm, um, about it in the book. Yeah. She really, really didn't want me to go. She was really mm. devastated and it was a big risk to do um because you know she was threatening suicide and all sorts of things and obviously that's like and it was a genuine risk that if I made this decision that it might have quite a big impact on my mum and but with the support of my extended family who really agreed that I should do it I did it and um it turned out to be a really great decision and my mum did come around to the idea and could see that it was the right decision for me and she was in the end really glad that I'd done it not always. She went back and forth quite a lot over the years. <laughs> um, it came up a lot when she was drunk. Um, but it, it's funny. I looked back. I remember when I got divorced, actually, I saw a therapist. The only time actually that I've seen a therapist is when around when I got divorced and um, I hadn't in all those years. And we sort of were talking about that decision and how it was a decision um, that actually I learned to trust my instincts. Mm. I don't know what made me make that decision. Then I don't know what made me brave enough to do it, but because it worked in a sense, I saw, um, I got support for that decision, not from my mum, but from other people. <laughs> um, and because actually I really did then thrive because I was still, I would still look back. I would consider what I was doing, still caring. I was sort of, you know, on the phone with my mum quite a bit. I went back for some weekends. I was there every holiday. So I was still, still very much, you know, um, caring for her, but just in a more, I just, I was able to remove myself and protect myself mm-hmm. quite a bit more and have a bit more control over when that happened I could control when I had phone calls with with her you know if I knew 
I had exams that day, I wouldn't speak to her till the evening, <laughs> you know, things like that, you know, whereas obviously at home, you know, you couldn't put those boundaries in place. So um, I think that decision did teach me to trust my instincts. Yeah, um, your, your intuition. It was like you, you, you did that. You listened and you. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was in my like, late 30s that I, I could sort of pinpoint that as a sort of starting point of me learning to trust myself. And I was really fortunate and in a very, very privileged position, I should add, that my, my family could afford to. But also, even more than that, actually supported me doing it yeah. because I know a lot of families would not have supported that decision. So, um, so it was a, yeah, so it was a big turning point in my life, I think. And then um, I've, you know, since that age, made all my own decisions for myself entirely. Mm. Um, and you know where I went to university how long I I actually ended up choosing to go I lived at home during university that was my choice I wasn't going to be made to do it by anybody Um, I've lived in a number of different countries I've always worked for myself I've um, so really I'd say from 14 I have made all of my own decisions and I'll you know listen to what my dad has to say I'm curious about his thoughts and my mum when she was alive, I would want her opinion, but I very much made all my own decisions from that point. So I guess I got a lot of practice mm. at like um, following what I was curious about, but also trusting my instincts. Mm. Um, and I know that's not the case for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people don't feel like they can trust their instincts, but so I would say it just takes, it takes a lot of practice and, um, and maybe, um, and I've heard uh, another writer who writes about creativity, Twyla Tharp. Um, she um, she wrote a a book called I think it's called The Creativity Habit or The Creative Habit, and she looks at creativity as a habit that you have to grow um, over time. And I think it, I, I very much agree with that line of thought as well, which is that um, you know following your curiosity has to be practiced. You know, it has to be a part of your, your kind of everyday life is to, to have that in your life. Um, and so one thing I think that can be really useful is when you're making small creative decisions, small decisions to follow your curiosity, um, tune in and see how it feels in your body when you're making those decisions mm-hmm. and just start noticing um, how it feels because I can, I can do that. I can when I need to make a big decision, like for instance, when I decided to borrow a load of money to go and do a master's degree, um, you know, I had to, when I was thinking about it, I kind of really tuned into how it felt, you know, if I thought about making that decision and everything that decision meant taking on debt, but also the time involved and, and the work itself and, and, you know, all those different things and sort of really tuning into your body and how you react to those uh, the details can can be helpful. I, I can be a really good practice. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, a, a brilliant practice, um, and really quite so inspiring um, that you were able to to know that. I mean, it, it makes me wonder about. I mean, I think there's so much hope in your book. Um, it it's a very strong feeling that comes through, and it makes me wonder what you think about you know a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of person I mean do Mm. you think that you were born with that 
<laughs> hope that has been abiding despite challenge after challenge that's been thrown your way you continually come out with this sense of hope for something to to really go right like something's gonna something good's gonna happen next and where does that come from oh gosh I don't know I don't know I honestly don't know whether it's something that you're born with or something you cultivate I suspect it's a bit of both like a lot of personality stuff you know I think it's a mixture isn't it I don't know I think there's probably a bit of contention about how much personality you're born with and how much you is cultivated by your you know family and society and everything um I suspect it's a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I, I, before I had children, I used to put a lot more emphasis on environment. And I used to think, you know, we're very much shaped by our experiences. But then when I actually gave birth to these humans and I, I was so sure their personalities. (laughs) Yeah. I was shocked because the moment they're born, like even now, like I look at all three of my children, I look, at them now and I'm like, you are exactly who you were the moment you were born like yeah. you are the same person things have happened to you but your being your nature was there it was mm. like 100 it was in your eyes it was like you're just yeah. you and I don't I I'm not sure that a lot of people see see human beings in that way but that's that's how I'm I definitely don't think humans are as kind of, well, I mean, I think we're very, we're very adaptable in lots of ways. So obviously as children, we, we adapt to the environment that we're raised in very much, but that doesn't necessarily explain everything. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Like um, years ago, I did a values exercise where I was sort of, you know, looking at sort of what my core values are and, And interestingly, optimism is one of them. Mm. And it's funny, most people don't really understand why you might have that as a value. And But for me, um, optimism is what has allowed me to take risks in Mm. my life. Um, And it doesn't matter that maybe not all of the risks have really paid off or panned out certainly not as exactly as how I imagined they would I mean I am divorced for a start didn't mention that (laughs) that was not planned um but that doesn't mean that it's that those risks weren't important ones to take Mm. just because they didn't turn out how I thought but I without optimism I would be paralyzed Mm. Um, you know I wouldn't be able to take the risks that I've taken um I wouldn't have been able to yeah I wouldn't be able to take the action that I have been able to take in my life if I didn't um feel optimistic and and that's not to say that I am a kind of all sunshines and rainbows person because I'm really not at all actually I really find um sort of toxic positivity really grating <laughs> and it was something I had to be really careful about about the tone of the book because I do believe in the innate goodness of people and I do believe people are doing the best they can and I do believe in offering yourself self-compassion and stuff but that doesn't mean that really terrible things don't also happen um, and those things sit side by side um, and so uh, I don't believe in sugarcoating necessarily. I sort of like talking about things in quite plain, straightforward ways. But yeah. at the same time, 
um, a sense of hopefulness is what drives action. And I think particularly in the world that we're in now with the, the kind of challenges we're facing as a species, um, we have to have hope because otherwise we won't have action. And, you know, we are at a point as a species that, you know, that there has to be action. And so, um, yeah, I can't imagine my life without an optimistic outlook in that sense. Mm. You seem to see it as part of this feeling of growth. Like a, it's like, a, it's a growth experience. So the, the difficult experiences that you've had or the decisions you've made maybe where things didn't go as you maybe would have expected brought growth nonetheless that I feel is is kind of an important distinction yeah I do but I also again coming back to this I don't really like the whole toxic positivity thing it doesn't mean that I'm glad that some of those things happened uh I was thinking about this recently just with the kind of recent two-year anniversary of the of the first lockdown and how my life has changed over that time a lot of really good things have happened in the past couple of years because I've been forced to make changes in my life and changes that I'm now really happy about but that doesn't mean I feel good about what's happened the past two years because it's been like really awful, painful process. So, um, so yeah, I think we, it's a bit in a way tricky to talk about in that, in that sense. Um, I think, um, who was it that said, I think it was Kathy Rensenbrink, who's a, you know, amazing author who I love, who said something like, um, you know, um, humans have this amazing capacity to look at the wreckage of their lives and create meaning from it. You know, it doesn't mean that we're glad that these things happened. It's just that we're human. So things will happen. It just will. Um, and so if we can create some meaning from, from that, um, it's a way to move on from those wreckages. Yeah. Oh, so it feels like it's a mix of like meaning and like surrender and hope and you know through all that finding purpose and it's actually a fantastic like I said map for for a way to live and um I think you're really inspiring (laughs) god it makes me sound like I've really got it sorted I really don't I mean I really really no but it doesn't it it, it just feels like you're, you're just really honest and I think that's something that we we need we need people to be honest about what life really feels like um mm. and I love what you do and, and other writers like Clover Stroud who mm. you know, talk about how unbearably difficult things like grief are yeah but how they're real full and rich experiences at the same time Yes, it's difficult to talk about. Like it's a difficult thing to talk about pain in that way. Yeah, I think it's how it feels though. And it was really, and it was really wonderful actually reading Clover's latest book, The Red of My Blood, because she writes about grief in a way that felt very familiar to me Mm. around the time that I lost my mum. It is a very, it can be a very, very physical, visceral experience, and I had never felt more alive in my life. Mm. in a weird kind of way Mm. it just felt like such a stark contrast to my mum not being alive I felt literally tingling with life not in a pleasant way just in a really crazy intense way 
And I think it's because the emotions are so acute and so visceral and very sensory that, um, that you can't help but sort of feel like you're practically vibrating with life in those moments. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think probably at moments early on in the pandemic, people probably felt like that, you know, and I live, I was in, I was living in New York in 2001, 2002, and I was in like down the road when the attacks on the Twin Towers happened. And it was a feeling that I had around then. It was actually only just a year after, a year and a half after my mom had died. And it felt really similar then to be in such close proximity to loss and to grief and to uh, um, a kind of before and there was a before and afterness to it, you know, where you are completely changed by something and there's a physicality to it that, um, yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's really amazing that um, there are writers out there who can articulate it for all of us. <laughs> yeah, and so beautifully. Yeah, it feels like what we were talking about um, before the interview about autism and how it's like the dial of, of, of experience and of what it means to be alive is like turned up really it's like on full yes. volume um so yeah I love I love the way you articulated that um so to, to finish off uh there's a question that I always ask at the end and I feel like you've already answered it really well <laughs> in the course of the interview but um I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway um so so the idea behind the tenderness revolution is it's as in having this quality of tenderness for ourselves and others is these three C's um, because I feel they enable us to sort of fully see the truth about the way things are and their courage, curiosity and compassion. And I just wanted to ask if you had to choose, I know it's incredibly difficult, but if you did um, have to choose one of these qualities that means the most in your life, uh, what would you choose? Oh gosh. Um... In a way, I would probably say courage, I think, because I think, um, well, I think both curiosity and compassion take courage. So I would say that's probably why I would choose that one. And it, and it, I would say that that along with what I was talking about earlier with, with optimism is the thing that has allowed me to, I guess, um, take control of what I can control and let go of what I can't um yeah so courage yeah oh I yeah I think that really um fully brings to life you know the meaning of of courage inner courage and just that it's like you have to have the courage to keep believing that you can take the next step and Mm. that when things completely unexpected things happen you're going to find a solution that's like the the practical bit and then you're going to find that kind of real um self-compassion around that wraps around all of it and and that enables you to keep giving in the way that you do as a carer um and just as an amazing person (laughs) I've really really enjoyed talking to you there's I just feel you, you share so much wisdom and um, I really appreciate your book being out there in the world and, and just uh, you sharing it and, and hearing what you have to say around all of this because it's incredibly important stuff. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been yeah. so um, lovely to chat. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenderness Revolution. 
I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us